Welcome to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Adriana. And I'm Sophia. And we're really excited to bring you two unique perspectives on theology of children. Sophia, as a neuroscientist studying child neurodevelopment, and me as a blooming new mother of two children, and our own lived experiences of becoming like children, as Matthew's gospel invites us. Yeah, I think this is a topic that intersects with a lot of what we've talked about before in terms of poverty of spirit and how to live the search for the encounter with Christ in your daily life. But I think that the image of what it means to be a child is such a salient example in our daily lives. It can, it can really help us unlock some of the things that we've touched on before. So I'm excited to dive into it today. And as you mentioned, to be able to bring a little bit of my knowledge about the brain to bear on this topic and to learn from, from your experience as a mother. I thought that we could start by reading that passage from Matthew that you referenced just to set the stage for like, why are we talking about the theology of childhood? Why is it relevant to each and every one of us, even if we're not mothers or uh, not developmental neuroscientists? Yes, I think it's a really provocative piece of scripture. Both references I think of, of course, scripture mentions children more than this, but come from the Gospel of Matthew. And the one in particular that prompted us, the disciples are kind of rebuking the people for bringing forth their children Mm. to Jesus, like Jesus kind of too busy for this ministry. It seems like they're implying, to me at least, it's in Matthew 19, then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not prevent them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Mm. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What does that mean? Okay, like kingdom of heaven, that's not just the eternal reality of contemplating God's face in heaven, but that's also the truth of this world. Mm. This all belongs to children. It's children who are able to see God at work here and now as well. And so this is why we not only shouldn't impede, he says in another place, like, it's better for those who cause a little one to sin to have a millstone thrown around their neck and to be cast into the sea. I'm paraphrasing there. But so not only are we not meant to impede these children from coming to know Christ, they can actually lead us because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's by learning from them, looking to them. That's where the reign of God begins in our own hearts. So yeah, I love I love this part of scripture. Yeah, as a mother, there's definitely some things that come to mind, like how clearly a child recognizes his or her mother for a sense of belonging and Jesus's invitation. Unless you too are a child of God, you won't recognize me in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I I love what you're saying about the kingdom of heaven here and now and in heaven. Yeah. And the promise is that we too can become like children. So he's not only holding children up as like the greatest in the church, but he's saying you have to become like this. It's in Matthew 18. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. So we have to turn and become like children. That's, That's conversion of heart. So as you were saying, there are certain 
things that you identify in, in Damien and Pia and your children, you're actually invited to be converted and conformed to the virtues that you see in them. Um, so maybe we could start then by spelling out what these childlike virtues are, what virtues we see in children, and maybe how we can try to grow in these aspects of a childlike heart. Yeah, and I think it'll be fun to discuss why this is so challenging because yeah. they're often just such simple qualities. Why is it easier to become like children? And like, why does Jesus have to say it in such a sharp manner? Mm-hmm. To convert means to be walking one way and then literally like in Latin to turn around and walk the other way. So it's obviously something we're not regularly doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, people tend to think of children as just like undeveloped adults. Yeah. But there really is something qualitatively different. I mean, we see this throughout neuroscientific and psychological research, that there's something qualitatively different about the way that children engage with reality. There's a categorical change from childhood to adulthood. It's not just degree, you get smarter and like better at doing life. Mm -hmm. Like there's certain fundamental shifts um, so I think it's true. It, we, we need to learn and be converted and submit ourselves to the radical change that Christ is inviting us to if we are going to become children, not like regress to the way that we used to be. That's definitely not what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. I think on that note, I'm thinking first just of a child's total openness to reality. And I even in my very rudimentary knowledge of neuroscience, I know about like a child's brain being totally open to any language mm-hmm. and how that slowly narrows and you actually become unable to hear different phonetic sounds like after the age of seven. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to go more into that. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. There's a certain like fundamental orientation of a young child's brain towards reality, towards learning from reality, towards interest in reality, and this really intense, I'm sure you've seen it in your kids, but like this intense passion for observing everything that happens around them. Mm -hmm. And not in a passive way, like in a really active way of manipulating things and seeing what happens or like taking that strange object they see on the floor and putting it in their mouth and like trying to figure out what it is. And The reason is because they're learning so quickly. Their brain is forming through the experiences that they have. And so I think, yeah, that is a great place to start as I'm thinking about what it means to be a child. Do I have this openness to my experience and to what really is happening? As if for the first time. Yeah. As if I too was a child encountering for the first time my friends or the sunrise or my work as a gift and as something exciting and novel and something that I can learn from. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking as you were saying, the openness to reality includes a willingness to learn something new. And Mm. how often do I approach my own family, my husband, my friends, regular circumstances of my life as if I won't learn anything new from it because I've already been here before. I already understand. I don't need to do this again. Yeah. And I can make it very self-centered. I got everything I needed to the first time out of it or the first 10 times. Mm-hmm. But a child, Damien will, <laughs> as you were saying, put things in his mouth. He'll put a different rock into his mouth every day. Yeah. <laughs> and 
<laughs> really investigate it. Hoping for something new. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe he learned something new from it each time. <laughs> um, but yeah, he approaches the entire world like that. Every single bird, he calls out that it's a bird. Every tree we have to talk about on our walk. We can't get very far because the same first five trees we see take us so long. But there's something so beautiful in that that each time I've seen this tree a million times, so has Damien, really. But each time he allows himself or his childlikeness preserves this ability to see it with wonder and to see it anew. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting. I don't want to present this as a lack of memory. It's not that children have like forgotten that reality exists. So in the same way, it's not that we have to completely start over and forget everything that we've experienced. But I heard this line the other day, memory isn't static, it has legs and it walks. And I love that because that's exactly for me, that's that's the attitude of a child towards life. Like they may have a memory of who this person is for them or what it is that they enjoy or how a a toy works but for them the memory has to be active and present now it's not enough for them to have had the experience in the past they want it present now Um, and so I think that that's tough for me you know it's tough for me especially when I think about my relationships with other people I'm really tempted to be closed off and to have to just treat people on the basis of judgments that I've formed about them in the past Mm -hmm. and not have the hope that they can surprise me, not have this fundamental openness to whatever needs they might present to me today or whatever gift they might bring into my life today. Um, I, I tend to like fossilize my memory of that person and then engage with that instead of the person in front of me, the irreducible mystery of the person in front of me. Yeah, so I think this is a, an area of childlikeness that that I really want to grow in. Yeah, and... Maybe we've talked about this on another podcast, but I love that word mystery and how we would talk about it in some of our theology classes, not as unknowable, but as infinitely knowable. Mm. So it's literally inexhaustible. And when we're talking about the mystery of the human person, they're infinitely knowable. There's no end depth and we can so often act otherwise, especially with those closest to us, that they're no longer infinite before us we already know everything about them yeah that's beautiful and i think points for me to another aspect of childlikeness which is this rootedness in relationship with the parent whether that's a mother or a father Um, because how is it that children can unceasingly try again and explore again even as this involves risk. Like I'm sure sometimes Damien's put things in his mouth that like aren't good for him, right? (laughs) And how is it that he can continue exploring? It's because of your presence. It's because of your presence that he has the courage to go out. If you weren't there, he would retreat in fear. This is how children behave. Without the presence of a parent to whom they're attached, they don't take risks. Um, And so, yeah, for me, it brings to mind... um, a line, I don't remember what psalm it is, but the line from the psalm that as a child is at rest in its mother arms, even so my soul. Like our soul is made to be so, mm-hmm. so full of the presence of Christ, so possessed by the love of the Father that we can walk, you know, in the valley of darkness and not fear the mm-hmm. strange and difficult things that we'll encounter. Yeah, so this exploration is made possible by a belonging. 
Yeah, I've always been really touched. There's a line in Balthazar in, I think, Love Alone is Credible, where he talks about how the human person first comes to know she's loved. And it's through that mother's gaze Mm -hmm. upon the infant that we recognize we're infinitely loved and can then come to analogously recognize the father's love. But he points precisely to that mother-infant gaze, which is so important for resting in a in belonging. I love what that psalm that you just quoted, because to actually rest in belonging means a total trust. It's not like a degree of trust or mm. I'm 80% confident this person loves me. Yeah. It's a full... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a certainty. Yeah, and that's what discipleship is. It isn't an 80% following. I mean, it's an actual relationship that you give your whole self over to, or it's not. There isn't a middle ground, really. Yes. Yeah, and I think this explains how you see in the saints this almost what looks like a naive or just kind of deranged trust in divine providence where you have stories of saints like whether it's giving their wealth away or going on mission or sacrificing things that the world would say like, you're crazy, why are you letting that go? Um, But because you're rooted in the certainty of the love of a father and your identity as a son or daughter of that father who is infinitely loving and infinitely lovable, um, then you can relinquish whatever it is that you're holding on to. But I want to go back to that that line that you drew from Balthazar or that image of the mother and infant gaze, which I honestly, when I first came across that in von Balthazar, I was blown away because this is something that we study in neuroscience all mm. the time is the gaze of the mother and her infant because it's so important for brain development. The child's, especially when you're a newborn, the child's gaze with her mother, skin contact with her mother like literally regulates her heartbeat and her brain waves and her love the levels of her hormones like it's amazing to see how unity is actually physically achieved between the mother and her infant in a way that forms the infant to then be able to self-regulate all of these bodily and neurological functions and so you cannot conceive of an infant without her mother She cannot survive, she cannot flourish, she cannot become herself except through the gaze of her mother. This this image is really helpful in combating sort of our go-it-alone, do-it-yourself attitude towards life. You know, the sense of I can fix myself, I can bring myself to my own destiny, I can construct for myself all of the things, even good things, but... Yeah, it's a real temptation to reject this fact that our identity is that we are loved into being by the Father. I think so often we let scripture become static and even just historical as if it has, but Jesus uses, and God uses our lived experiences now and they're relevant now. I mean, even that line from the psalm and what you're saying about the neurodevelopment of a child through being held by the mother. I mean, I experience, whether it's the oxytocin release, but just an enormous joy in holding Pia and holding Damien. And in those early days where bonding is so significant for the newborn, 
I think there's the most oxytocin release in a child at, at childbirth and then the first few minutes of skin-to-skin contact. Yeah, and breastfeeding, yeah. Yeah, it's like a, a rush of consolation. Mm. And God speaks to us within that. Mm-hmm. Pia's here for those who can't, uh, who haven't identified <laughs> the sounds. <laughs> we appropriately have a baby on this, uh, featured on this episode. Yes, babies are also on their own schedule and they don't always nap <laughs> when you would like them to. Which, I don't know, I do think as inconvenient as it can be and as much as we do want um, regular sleep schedules, it does point to another virtue, I think, of a childlike heart, though, which is that children express their needs. You know, we're talking about this relationship with the father. Children express their needs to their parents, you know, sometimes too insistently or too emotionally or whatever (laughs) it is. But like, Pia's never going to be hungry and not tell you, you know? And I think that, Mm -hmm. do I come to Christ crying out that I need the hundredfold in my work in these days when my research has been really frustrating lately? You know, I'm tempted to just put my head down and say, this too will pass. Or like the Brits here love to say, like, keep calm and carry on, you know, just have a stiff upper lip. But do I run to him crying, saying, like, you've made me for joy? Like, where is it? Mm-hmm. Because it's not up to us. And we do have a father who can provide. So so do we let that trust lead us to begging, to prayer, to prayer? Yeah, I guess it occurs to me, like, how as children we intuitively recognize that our needs can be satisfied and we begin to lose sight of that through sin and human brokenness as we grow older and then can just become numb to that need itself and no longer even actively recognize it, though it remains. Yeah. And I guess I want to tie that to a return to childlikeness without, as you said earlier, comparing it to kind of a regression yeah where someone might say like well yeah that's just a child who has to cry because they're hungry whereas you and i might be able to walk and get food Mm -hmm. i don't know if you have more thoughts on that yeah i think obviously our freedom is greater now than than when we were children and we do have a responsibility to use that freedom and so the fact that god answers our prayers often through our own exercise of our freedom, that he gives us the grace to find and to hold on to the answers to our longings. I think that's, yeah, very real. And and so to have a childlike heart would not be to reject this responsibility or ignore the fact of our freedom. But I think so often we err on the other side of things, you know, of not, as you said, of numbing our desires and not asking for an answer. But I would also say like intellectualizing them. That's a big temptation I see in myself and and in my friends of thinking, if I can just sort this out cognitively, if I can put an answer down on paper, if I can digest my experience enough, then ultimately this longing of my heart will go away. Mm-hmm. Here, there's something so beautiful that we can learn from children who sometimes won't even put words to it, just trusting that their father, Christ himself tells us, like, your father knows what you need. He knows what we need better than we do. And uh, and so trusting that and therefore turning to prayer instead of our own resources, I think, is is a childlike attitude. Yeah, I love, it reminds me of Father Colin on the podcast sharing the gospel, our 10th episode of 
of reminding that our own inadequacy we see as a weakness, but really it's this opportunity to just recognize our open arms and that open arms are for another. And that's the only way we're going to be fulfilled. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes you tireless. Like one of the things I love about kids is that, so in in neuroscience, we would describe it as different reward circuitry. Like they're not motivated by the same kinds of things that adults are. And they're also not unmotivated by the same kinds of things that adults are, namely failure. Kids are remarkably resilient to failure because their desire to learn and to grow and to explore is so huge. And they're not thinking about productivity and exploiting the things in front of them. Their desire is so huge that they're able to get up again and again and again and try again when they fail. I mean, I think the clearest example of this is when a kid is learning to walk. You you know, they'll fall something like, Mm -hmm. I read a paper the other day, it's something like 17 times per hour on average when they're learning to walk. Like if I failed at something 17 times per hour for a single day, I would swear that activity off for the rest of my life. But they keep at it for months. And like, why? Because, Because the mother is there encouraging them and because they see the mother walking and because, you know, so this is, do we... Do we trust that we have a father who's awaiting us, a father who's encouraging us and has his arms outstretched as we're trying again and again? Like for me, this is such a beautiful image of morality, of what true morality is, you know, not a checklist of moral rules, but a relationship with a father who makes us tireless in getting up and trying again to affirm him and to love him and to be who who we truly are because of that bond of love. Yeah, and that reminds me, of something Father Giussani said, that's something like every true human experience reminds us of our own powerlessness mm. and that we can't solve our own problems and no one else can, other people like us. I'm paraphrasing also. But a child is so comfortably powerless. Like that that's the only way you can approach failure with such positive attitude. You don't mind that. Yeah that you're without power and you don't mind re-experiencing that again. I think what part of what makes failure so uncomfortable for me now is that it puts me face to face with my own vulnerability and my own lack of power. Yeah. On an existential level. Yeah, that's really insightful. As I reflect on we recently emerged from a strict lockdown here in the UK and I'm starting to interact with others again in person, I'm confronted with the fact so clearly and poignantly because I've been in solitude for so long. I'm confronted with the fact that my instinct when I'm with others is to affirm myself. Mm. And it's often impatience with the other person or it's not loving their destiny before who they can be for me. It's possessing them. It's I have this instinct to reduce love and I hate it, right? I get to the end of the day and I'm tempted to be ashamed mm-hmm. and and to just look at myself and say like, Lord, like, why did you call a sinner like me? Because look, did you see what just happened, you know? But but to your point, I think that that very experience of my powerlessness, if I allow it to, can serve as a reminder that it's not even my love in the first place that ultimately can answer this need of my heart, this need of my heart to love others well and to receive love in turn. 
this is not going to come from me. It's not through my own efforts or my own perfection that I can learn how to love others well. It's through begging for the grace from God and trusting that even when I fall, if I get up again and continue walking on this path of trying to love, that eventually he will He will teach me. Um, he will give me a share. You know, I have a huge devotion to the heart of Jesus. He will give me a share in his heart and conform you know, John Henry Newman has this prayer like, when will you make my stony and unloving and selfish heart a little bit more like yours? <laughs> I really relate to that. But um, but yeah, it's I have to get up and keep trying to love just like a child has to get up and keep trying to walk if, if he or she is ever going to learn. Yeah, I wonder if you'd agree. That's really beautiful what you shared, that a danger for people, I guess, like us that have really given themselves over to the church and learned a lot, can tend to then be seen for better, for worse as leaders or with certain authority and can become instructive and corrective. And that can almost, it can become a false God, like Mm. our ability to teach where's the crown in our heart instead of Jesus. Um, I guess I just, as you were saying, that resonated so deeply, like with my own experience and how I can be with my family and friends Sometimes wanting them to to do exactly what I think would be the right thing for them to do mm. and less open to the mystery of their experience because perhaps I'm afraid of of it not leading to Christ or I can be so distrusting of experience as much as I love Father Giussani. I have to like trust him again and again that it isn't the systems that are going to save us or knowing the catechism well enough. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I can see that dynamic and how that might be a fruit of certain, you know, formation with your your masters of divinity degree like you are equipped for ministry, right? And to to accept that the mystery is using your humanity and the humanity of the people who love you and working through your freedom as well as through all of the the knowledge and formation that you've received. Yeah, that's probably humbling in, in, in a total continual call for conversion. I think I might experience something similar with my younger siblings, my two younger siblings, this sense of I've made so many mistakes in my life that I want to spare them. I want to intervene and say, do not go down this path because it leads to misery and darkness and regret. Like, I want to take their freedom away from them in the interest of bringing them closer to Christ, what I think will bring them closer to Christ. Mm -hmm. And yet, like, looking at my own personal history, where is it that I encountered God through his church and sacraments and the companionship of believers because I had gone down a road that so clearly showed me my need for him. Mm -hmm. So this is one place I think as we're thinking about this dynamic of like a child, not trusting in our own knowledge and our own ability, but really reverencing the mystery of the other person and their freedom and our own freedom, even when that brings with it its limitations for me, like, looking at my own personal history can constantly recall me to this to this attitude and remind me that it's never been knowledge and formation in the strict sense that has saved my life from the grave, um, to use the, the phrasing of the psalmist. It's always been a relationship. It's always been 
my own personal experience of my desires in relationship with someone or something that that points to an answer. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, that resonates exactly with my own experience of having some of my deepest encounters <laughs> with Christ and the Father's love for me in my darkest moments. Well, obviously, neither one of us are like inviting others to sin so that they can have yeah. <laughs> these dark moments. But yeah, respecting their freedom. Yeah, and also believing in God's providence and in his care. And yeah, it's, it's a definitely a balancing act. And hard to talk about in the abstract, too, like we're kind of doing, because it's so relational, like what you're saying. From a mother-child perspective, the mother has to allow her child to fall 17 times an hour in learning how to walk. Yeah. And we so clearly see the good of walking. So we make that sacrifice willingly. And perhaps that analogy still applies later when we're giving our teenager more freedom. And mm -hmm. I can only hope I am like that as a mother of two children that are under two. Yeah. Yeah. But Sophia, you also mentioned in your neuroscience studies how children are motivated by different things than adults can be. I guess I assume you mean how often we're motivated by success, the end product, and what what do you see as differences? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in the literature, we describe it as a tension between exploration and exploitation. And in adults, you really see the hegemony of exploitation, that we're constantly using things for an end, as a means to an end. And an end that's often quite remote, right? So as you mentioned, mm -hmm. like success or wealth or whereas how I would describe a child's motivation, children are rooted in the reality that's present in front of them and not images that they have in mind of what they might be able to gain from it through their own action. So not and not in a naive way either. You know, it's not like they're just super short sighted, which, you know, children kind of are. But to, to be to be a child doesn't mean we have to lose sight of more distant outcomes or downstream desires of ours. Um, but to understand that the hundredfold is born in front of us, right? So if we're thinking like macroscopically, we could take like the question of your vocation, right? Your vocational discernment. What, what on earth has God planned for you in this world, right? We're always tempted to resort to images, to project to the future and say like, hmm, like, let me put on this outfit and, like, place myself in this context and see, would I be happy? But, like, that's not how it works. And to have a childlike heart, we see, no, like, what I need is to be available to exactly what God has put in my life today. That's what I follow. Um, that's the only reality that I can live. That's the only place that I can be in relationship with Christ, which ultimately is what your vocation is. So, yeah, so I think this this sense of motivation and rootedness in the present is a really important feature of, of childlikeness. I love that. That's so beautiful. It reminds me of the Sanctity of Work episode and exactly what you're saying. You don't have to discard the end goal or end images, but they don't become so all-consuming that you've totally lost sight of the present moment. Pia is very chatty right now. She agrees. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's very excited about the present moment. <laughs> the simplest example for me right now is 
sometimes I can be motivated to clean the house because I want a cleaned house, but the activity of cleaning itself can become such a chore. And therefore, I'm. it's very easy for that to become a negative point in my day and something I don't see as an opportunity to encounter God. And I have to remind myself that this too can be sanctified and this too is an opportunity to meet God. And I guess to be clear about how... There's a real meditative quality that comes with these activities and allows you to practice the contemplative life in a way that I I didn't have the opportunity to when I was working full-time in the Navy mm. and so engaged with other people all the time. And when I can step back from the end goal, whether it be a cleaned house or whatever it is, the perfect grade on a paper, it allows me to to be before that experience and let it teach me something new and not plan for what it's going to teach me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so challenging because we're not, I mean, neurobiologically, we're not wired for that disposition towards life. We're wired to Mm. exploit as adults. Um, So it really goes against, but also culturally, as we've talked about again and again, this, this culture of, of productivity and materialism. I really appreciate that point you made about, the contemplative dimension of everyday life. And to me, it also sounds like this is something that you're offering. You're offering this to Christ, Mm -hmm. these small acts. Um, Jusani loves to say that no matter what you're doing, it has no meaning and there's no sense in doing it unless it's in relationship with the mystery, unless you offer it to the mystery. So you're brushing your teeth. If you don't offer it to the mystery, you've missed something. As simple as getting dressed in the morning. And then, of course, like also going to work. My struggle to love these people well, my friends here in Cambridge over dinner. Like none of these things have any meaning unless in relationship with Christ. And tangibly, what does that look like? But saying like, Lord, I offer you this. You know, I offer you this eighth hour of coding in R because my experiment's not working. Like I offer you this moment of cleaning I offer you this this hour of prayer. We're made to be childlike in our recognition of the presence of God. Yeah, I think having children has definitely and obviously been a great opportunity to practice a childlike spirit before the mystery again. I think the pandemic, too, it has been an invitation to return to a childlike nature, if only because... It's been such a experience of life that we haven't been able to immediately reject yeah. that circumstance. I mean, and it's affected all of us and it's forced us to be open to it. A sort of painful education in childlikeness for those who accepted it. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to agree. I think I, though I am not a mother and do not have children to uh, on the regular educate me in this disposition. I do have memories, distinct memories of encounters with children that kind of stick in my mind as how I want to live. So I have this really clear example of um, I was working at a foundation run by Father Aldo Trento in, in Paraguay one summer and working with this kid who was struggling with PTSD and just had a really, really tough background. But when he was asking me, he was this kid is like seven years old, he was asking me, like, how can you be happy? 
So I started telling him, well, you know, my, my faith in Christ and, and all these things. And he's like, well, how do you know? How do you know that God is there? Because if God is here, why don't I feel him? And I was honestly, I had no idea what to say to him. And I just told him like, oh, like as you get older, whatever. It was like some bullshit answer. Mm -hmm. Because I had no idea how I had gotten to that. This was still very early on in my, but really what has remained with me is this like insistent question of like, how do you know God is here? How do you know God is here? So these sort of icons of childlikeness are really helpful um, in educating me to stay in front of my own desires and to bring them to the Father and trust that he can answer them. I love that story. And it's very moving to hear as a mother because, as we've talked about, mothers are and fathers so primary in educating their children. But there is a recognition that has to be there that we can't answer mm. certain questions. And you couldn't answer that boy's question. Yeah. And you can't produce for him the mystery of God. You can only share your own testimony. And that's true for me as a mother and as someone who, as we've said, has this master of divinity. I can think, and maybe it's my own just <laughs> sinfulness, be kind of a know-it-all. Like, I, I have the answer to the question if you ask it and I can tell it to you. And certainly, I, I think I can act like that with my children. Mm. granted they're only two and three months so they still are very forgiving <laughs> but i won't be able to to answer that for damien either yeah i can only share with damien and communicate my own lived life of discipleship as as an education of this is what it means for me to know the father and not in a totally subjective way that isolates my experience from other people it's within communion of the church and through the education of the church yeah but it nonetheless recognizes that that has to happen for Damien and that has to happen for Pia too. Yeah, that is such a good point. And I think I think really illuminates for me this other place that I turn to for the education of the heart that I need, which is just living together with people for me who help me love Christ more, just walking with them within the church. Not even necessarily like talking to them explicitly about it or asking them or sharing my own experience, but just seeing what happens to them, seeing how Christ comes into their lives, seeing how they respond and and through walking with them, then allowing this to to educate my own heart as well. Yeah, so I'm infinitely grateful for especially the the relationships that I've formed through CL, through the movement. You've met a lot of them too, but just these extraordinary people who, you know, at age 60 still have the heart mm -hmm. of a child and, and look at their days each morning with like a newness and a zeal for life that I, that just floors me, right? I'm like so jaded in comparison. So yeah, so just really grateful for that because it enables us to go a lot further than we would on our own. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny that you even say that of like, you're so jaded in comparison because I think we always do that to ourselves. I remember one time a person had said to me, like, I love being around you because your faith is so palpable. And I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean it's palpable? I've been in absolute darkness. But it's through the other yeah. that that it's palpable. And for me, you, that's is the same. Like, I seek out your friendship or I think about, you know, one of my friends at church where I just, I want to be around her. We're made for communion, and it's yeah. 
to use the words of communion and liberation. It's that communion that liberates us, yeah. not the self-sufficiency that that we always kind of innately turn to in our postmodern culture because we're a culture of self-sufficiency. Amen. Amen. I think that is an excellent synthesis of what it means to be a child. Totally. Obviously, a journey we have to undertake every day for those of us who are not children. <laughs> but, um, but to that end, do you have in mind uh, a challenge for our listeners? Yeah, I think for a weekly challenge, it's really simple, but try and intentionally and like be observant to the children in your life, whether you have children, and dedicate some time to that. If you don't have children, just Pay attention, you know, to the children that you see from across the street or at mass. Look at what they focus on, what they're moved by. And I think something will manifest for you in that moment, too, whether it be their wonder or their openness or their dependence Mm. upon their parents. There's no end goal to it. I guess just let that experience be new for you. That's great. In keeping with our... uh our emphasis this episode on not exploiting our experience (laughs) for other ends. (laughs) Just rest in it. Yeah. Do you have a media recommendation for us, Sophia? So my recommendation would be the movie Groundhog Day. This has been one of my favorites for a long time. I think I actually put it in my college applications. So (laughs) it's a great movie with Bill Murray. And I will not spoil the plot for those of you who haven't seen it. But I think one of the lessons of the film is to live a truly human life and to live the life that's given to you, you need to have a disposition of a child with the humility and the wonder and loving people without possession. Like all of these things that we've talked about today, um, I think come out really clearly in the film. Yeah, I love that film. I also wrote a paper on it for college too. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, everyone, for being here with us. We're so excited for our second season, and we hope to see you again here next week. Yeah, as always, you can find all of the things that we referenced uh, in the show notes, and you can always reach us at our email or our show's Instagram page. And until next week, know of our prayers for you. Have a great week, everyone. 